a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Oh, we have a lot to cover today. i got a very special guest coming up in uh, my other hour of the show. Uh, we're going to be talking to an ammo manufacturer. I don't know if you're one of the 5 million new gun owners in the U.S. within just the past uh, few months, but... Uh, Wow. Finding ammunition? Very, very tough. Spencer Worthington will be joining me in the other hour of the show, and we're going to talk about this. In the meantime, the program is brought to you by Firesteel.com. I'm hearing back from more and more of my friends who have taken my challenge, gone to Firesteel.com, gone to their website, looked at their amazing fire starting products, magnesium fire starters, ferro rods, the, the gob spark. That's the one that I use. It is just amazing equipment. And it's simple. It puts it, you could put it in your pocket and have the ability to start a fire under pretty much any conditions, whether you're in a disaster situation, a survival situation, or you can just be, you know, honing your skills and, you know, being good at getting a campfire started or something to, uh, something to make s'mores or whatever. Anyway, they'll knock 10% off your purchase if you just put in my name, Brian with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N, at uh, your checkout, firesteel.com. Let me know, by the way, if you have any trouble with that coupon code. I did have a friend who said he tried it and it didn't work. Um, and I said, well, I'm going to have to buy you lunch. I, I, you know, hopefully, I, as far as I understand, it's working okay for everybody. So he's the only one I'm going to have to buy lunch for. But firesteel.com, that's where you want to go. All right. I'm going to dive right in with both feet today. And, uh, and we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. This is a guy whose name is becoming very well known. I'm sure to... to to his chagrin, this is the 17-year-old kid who was present in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a couple of nights ago, helping to protect businesses from looters and rioters and arsonists. I'm sure you've heard about the unpleasantness in, in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, right? And uh, BLM has been going on rampages. It doesn't matter if your business had a Black Lives Matter sign hanging up. They still would go and they torched a car dealership that had that very sign, you know, on their marquee. It just doesn't matter. Police were told, stand down. And I guess it's because it started with a police shooting of a black suspect that, uh, you know, police are, are they're being told by their politically motivated superiors, you know, to take a soft approach, you know, try to understand their rage. At any rate, businesses and business owners are pretty much on their own. So Kyle Rittenhouse from, uh, I guess he's from about 20 miles away, just across the, the state line in Illinois, he and others showed up for the purpose of protecting. And here's the, this is the amazing thing. The protesters go out there and they try to instigate trouble. Now, if you think, Ryan, you're taking sides here. I'm telling you what I have seen. And I have seen video after video of these protesters going and blocking highways and then surrounding cars and pounding on cars and breaking off mirrors and breaking out windows, trying to provoke a reaction. And then when a, when a driver speeds off or when someone resists them, they try to play the victim. And of course, the, the ubiquitous cell phone cameras always, everybody's filming, filming, filming. Look, we're victims. Well, thanks to all these protesters and their proclivity, to video everything so that they can show themselves the victims, 
they inadvertently have very clearly shown that Kyle Rittenhouse is not an aggressor. And this is in part because uh, some of the journalists who have been uh, there to support the protest took the time to talk to him. And he's a very non-radical kid. There was nothing radical at all about what he had to say or why he was there. He explained, I'm here to, my job is to, to help protect business. I have a medical kit. If any of the protesters get injured, I'm here to render aid to them. He was there to provide help. Now, these videographers also caught an individual. There was, there was several people, but there was one individual in particular who was taunting and, and screaming and, and jumping and doing the monkey dance and, you know, invi- daring them, shoot me, blankety blank, shoot me. And not surprisingly, this is the guy who ended up getting shot first. Now, I don't know what, what transpired in terms of how Kyle Rittenhouse was separated from the group that he was with, but at, at some point, he was separated from the group. And this, uh, this bald-headed guy who had been taunting him and daring him to do something earlier came after him. And from the video, again, thank you videographers for, for first of all, documenting the guy who was, was being so aggressive and, and trying to instigate some kind of violence. They caught this guy chasing after Kyle throwing something flaming at him. I don't know if it was a Molotov or if it was, uh, you know, something else, but he was chasing after him. Kyle was retreating. He was running from him and got cornered between a couple of cars. And it was at that point he turned around and he shot the guy because he was defending himself. Now, here's the interesting thing. He didn't immediately run away from it. In fact, he got on the phone and called 911 and was telling the police, I think I just killed somebody. And, of course, people were running to render aid and whatnot. And, and then some of them started screaming at him, get out of here, get out of here. So, so he took off. He actually went to try to turn himself into the police in armored vehicles. And they turned him away. You can't come in here with a long gun on loudspeaker. They told him he couldn't come in there. So he started to go back to the business that he had been protecting. This is where the rest of the mob started chasing after Kyle. And they were chasing him down the street. Now, look, I I know it sounds like I'm spinning this. I'm telling you what I saw in the video. I saw a kid running for his life. Yes, he was armed. But I just want to point out, he was not trying to engage people. He was not trying to threaten them. He wasn't strutting around, you know, doing that uh, standoff pageantry thing and trying to look tough. He was running for his life from this angry mob, and they were chasing after him. And at one point, he tripped and fell, and one of the people who was coming after him, one of his attackers, threw a flying kick at him and missed, thankfully. But the next person up on him hit him over the head with a skateboard. That guy caught a bullet for his troubles, and rightly so, because that skateboard can definitely be used as a deadly weapon. Don't believe me? Why don't you go threaten a cop with a skateboard and see what he does about it? He won't tickle you with a feather because you are posing a deadly threat when you're swinging it like a hammer. So skateboard dude goes down in the street, and then another guy approaches Kyle with gun drawn and tries to take his rifle from him, tries to disarm him, and Kyle ends up shooting that guy in the arm. Now, this is horrific stuff, okay? I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, gunfights right there in the middle of the street. But thanks to all of those protesters who took the time to shoot video, it's very clear, and you can see it from multiple angles. At no point was Kyle Rittenhouse the aggressor. And it's, it's funny because some are like, well, but he was 17 years old. and you know, Sorry, 
He was a responsible kid. I mean, he he wasn't out there. He he was behaving. Whoever trained him actually did a very good job. He had good trigger discipline. His uh, his shooting skills. I don't say this to to be salty, but his shooting skills were very good. He ended the threats that were directly threatening him. He did not shoot innocent people. He only uh, he only stopped his attackers. And he did not, uh, you know, continue to sling lead when there was no need to do so. More importantly, he kept his head in a situation where I think very few people, even a trained police officer, may have been very tempted to, to lose it. Mobs are scary, dangerous things. And, of course, uh, the, finally, Kyle was able to get down to the police. He was able to, to uh, turn himself in. And then he was arrested yesterday. And it, it's so interesting. He's already being charged with first-degree premeditated murder. You know, normally they'll charge a guy with, with a lesser charge just to hold him. And then, you know, they build the case. Was it really murder? But, of course, you know, the court of public opinion and with, you know, trying to placate the protesters and whatnot, um, officials have decided they're going to throw the book at him. Now, this is just my opinion, and I may be wrong. I don't think a jury could see all of the video shot by those videographers and not come to the conclusion that this guy was not doing anything but defending himself. He did nothing wrong. And the ones who were saying, but he crossed state lines. Oh, the law matters now. Let's let's talk about that, especially in the context of, you know, burning down businesses, looting businesses, assaulting people. Yes, let's let's do talk about just how much the law matters. The saddest thing to me is this is the inevitable consequence of people who have pushed and pimped and promoted violence nonstop for the last three months. They've been looking for an excuse. They've been looking for a chance to have martyrs. The media is all in. The media is all, oh, yes, this kid, you know, he was a wannabe cop. And, 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 and it looks like uh, from, from his social history postings, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, is a supporter of Back the Blue and other such efforts. But looking at it strictly on what can be seen from the video, um, it's, it's a pretty clear, it looks to be a pretty clear-cut case of self-defense. I think it's horrific that he was ever put into this situation. Some would say, well, he never should have been there in the first place. I don't know. You know, he's, he lives 20 miles away from there. Maybe his conscience said, you need to stand and help these business owners and help protect them. I'm not going to fault him for that. But uh, bottom line is, Kyle Rittenhouse is soon to be a household name. And now you hopefully have a little bit better understanding why. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us in this exercise of wrong think. Please take the time to uh, spread the word, by the way. Maybe become a wrong thinker yourself. You can uh, find that opportunity at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. It's uh, right there. You'll see it just as, as you hit the landing page. Join the wrong thinkers, and uh, we'll have a we'll have a grand old time. Hmm, to paraphrase the Flintstones. Okay, I'm not a fan of the isms. There are so many isms out there, and uh, you know people define themselves by their isms: conservatism, progressivism, sexism, ableism, blah blah blah. Not a huge fan of it, and yet uh, I have to concede sometimes. 
the ism is correctly identified. And I think Lawrence W. Reed, our friend Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education, has nailed the latest ism that has become the social imperative, presentism. And he has an article titled, Presentism Imperils Our Future by Distorting Our Past. Now, what he's talking about here is how presentism focuses on uh, on the here and now as if it is the, the pinnacle of human development. But he warns that if it becomes the conventional wisdom, we will corrupt our history and forget, forget much of the rest. Here's how he spells it out. Larry Reed says, New York City is famous for its fashion runways. Amid the oohs and ahs and camera flashes, men and women sashay past the clothing uh, cognoscenti, hoping for approving reviews. With a little help from Star Trek technology, the Big Apple was the site of a most extraordinary apparel show just last week. Several people from the past were teleported to a runway in Soho so they could strut their stuff. Cicero from ancient Rome was there, so was Joan of Arc from the 15th century. Medieval's Russia's, medieval Russia's Ivan the Terrible and Tastigai, a cannibal from Papua New Guinea. Even Thag, the Bohemian caveman, showed up. Judges in the audience represented some of the most uh, famous fashion houses in the world. Giorgio Armani, Fendi, Prada, Versace, Salvador Ferragamo, Gucci, Max Mara, among others. But Larry says the show, unfortunately, was an unmitigated disaster from start to finish. The critics were merciless. Their worst epithets so distasteful, I can't repeat them here. But he says, here's a sample of some of the less offensive remarks. Hey, Cicero, is that your mother's blanket you're wearing? And what's with the sandals? Can't you afford a decent pair of shoes? Cries the Gucci guy. The judge from Giorgio Armani was especially offended by Joan of Arc's armor-plated bra. Where did you get that tin can, Joan? From the dump? He shouted. Ivan looks like an Eskimo in drag, chortled the Prada person. Hey, Ivan, who does your laundry? The sewer treatment plant? And poor Tastigai really got slammed. Your breath reeks from 40 feet away. Get your act together, screamed the Ferragamo rep. Then came the caveman's turn. You look like you just stepped out of a Far Side cartoon. What kind of name is Thag anyway, the Versace saleswoman yelled. Is your last name Gag? Now he says, my contrived report may or not be, may, may not be humorous, but he says, you might think it ridiculous. Fair enough. But the sentiments expressed by the fictional fashion show critics are not far removed from a trend that's disturbingly on the rise today. And it's the form of judging people of the past by current standards, a failure to consider them in the context of their time and culture, a narrow focus on certain attributes rather than the whole person. And as Larry Reed explains, sometimes it takes a little absurdity to illustrate why something is absurd. Terms for this way of looking at the past range from intertemporal bigotry to chronological snobbery to cultural bias to historical quackery. He says the more clinical label is presentism. It's a fallacious perspective that distorts historical realities by removing them from their context. In sports, we call it Monday morning quarterbacking. Presentism is fraught with arrogance. It presumes that present-day attitudes didn't evolve from earlier ones, but popped fully formed from nowhere into our superior heads. To a presentist, our, our forebears constantly fail to measure up, so they must be disdained or expunged. As one writer put it, they feel that their light will shine brighter if they blow out the candles of others. Whew, that's a good one. Larry Reed says our ancestors were part or each a part of the era in which they lived, not ours. History should be something we learn from, not run from. If we analyze it through a presentist prism, 
we will miss much of the nuanced milieu in which our ancestors thought and acted. He says, as I've written elsewhere, imagine if we could bring the Wright brothers back to life for an hour so the critic could berate them. He would say, you dummies, you two made this rickety flying machine and didn't even install seat belts and tray tables, let alone in-flight movies. What good were you? Or it would be like attacking Adam Smith because he didn't give us all there was to know about economics. He completely left out the Austrian trade cycle theory, for example. Now, Larry Reed says, a profoundly good historian restrains his preconceptions, biases, and political agenda and seeks to understand the whole of a past event or person. He doesn't erase them. There are degrees of presentism, but the most radical form shows up in the destruction of monuments, the banning of books, and the flushing of entire generations down the Orwellian memory hole, all tactics employed shamelessly by history's worst totalitarian regimes and now by many protesters and their presentist professors. Amazingly, rioting presentists in Britain, or presentists rather, in Britain, recently demanded the destruction of the Egyptian pyramids of Giza. Why? Oh, come on, you know the answer. Because they were built with slave labor. How could such an act possibly improve our understanding of the people of that age? As writer Chip Hughes laments, we all too often color history with the lens of our current prejudices. Remember, attitudes and, agri and, and cultural, cultural values rather have changed over time. Now, Paul Bartow, writing for AEI, explains, quote, The task of the historian, or the modern university student for that matter, is not to descend from on high and mete out judgment. As historian Herbert Butterfield stated, the historian should be a recording angel rather than a hanging judge. When one studies the past, it's meant to be a deeply introspective experience. The goal is to enter into conversation with historical figures, to understand their world as fully as we can, to learn from them, and to let them challenge our worldviews. As historian Ashley Cruz-Turner so aptly states, history rep represents the preservation of our collective past as well as the study of change over time. The role of the historian encompasses a sacred duty to offer a multidimensional picture of the past and the people of the past in the context of the past. End quote. Now, Larry Reed says, My summer 2020 reading included a fascinating book by historian Mark Perry, Grant and Twain, The Story of an American Friendship. It's about two giants of 19th century America, Ulysses S. Grant and Mark Twain. In the book, he says, I learned that Robert E. Lee's nephew, Fitzhugh, marched alongside the casket at Grant's funeral, and that Grant's wife, Julia, forged a close relationship with Verena Davis, widow of Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy. He says, I couldn't help but think if people you might dismiss as natural antagonists could make peace with history and with each other, why can't we do so today? And Larry Reed says, all too often these days, the poison of presentism prevents that very thing. Nonetheless, as writer Rosmina Lowy puts it, history demands our humble understanding, not our hubis hubristic outrage. Wow. I want to put that one on a bumper sticker. Larry Reed says, presentism deserves your attention. If it becomes the conventional wisdom, we will corrupt our history and forget much of the rest. My gut tells me that any people who judge the past by the present will in the future be harshly judged themselves. By the way, he has uh, some great articles linked to this essay, and you can find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Lots of good reading. Presentism at its worst, warts and all. What future do we have if woke warriors destroy our past? I, I had never heard the term presentism until 
I stumbled across this essay by Lawrence W. Reed. But it's, uh, it's now part of my lexicon. I will be working it into my vocabulary, sprinkling it into my show. And hopefully, uh, hopefully we have something to learn from the people who uh, did the best they could under the circumstances they were in and according to their understanding of the world at the time that they were alive. Now, speaking of historical lessons, when we come back, we're going to take a few moments to talk about a question that's on a lot of people's minds, one that causes some very disturbing feelings in people to even ask. And that is, uh, in the state of crisis that we're in right now, could the U.S. slide into the abyss like Germany did in 1933? It's a question worth asking and exploring. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. This is the program that challenges you to think, but not so much with a finger thumping into your chest and telling you you've got to think like me, but just challenging conventional wisdom. And boy, I'll tell you, one of the things that that really challenges conventional wisdom, in fact, it makes a lot of people angry, is any time you start to draw comparisons between how we are responding to crises today versus how uh, Weimar Germany responded to crises in the 1930s. I know, everybody's, it's, it's Godwin's law, it's uh, reductio ad Hitlerum, and, you know, every, everything that I disagree with is Hitler. And there is a certain degree of that out there on social media and in, in uh, discourse and argument. There are people who use Hitler as a crutch, but there are also some incredible parallels, and anyone who asks the question, are we in danger of making some of the same mistakes that uh, people in Weimar Germany did I think that deserves uh, it deserves an answer. It's not something we need to just brush aside because, well, <laughs> you went there. So, so let's consider this. Stephen Brahe and Jim Nelson have an article on counterpunch.org. Could we slide into the abyss like Germany in 1933? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, this is a fairly balanced piece, meaning they're going to take Trump to, to task as much as they take anybody else. But that's what, uh, that's what principled people would do, right? We put our faith in the principles, not in the personalities, or at least we're not supposed to. So with that uh, caveat, let's dive right in. They started with the question, will Donald Trump leave office if he loses the election? Many are wondering how he might bend the law to stay in the White House. The president frequently inveighs against voter fraud and says his opponents will steal the election with fraudulent mail-in ballots. Further, he refuses to say if he will accept election results. Matters are so serious that a bipartisan think tank of 100-plus current and former senior government and campaign leaders conducted matrix games on what could go haywire between the November 3rd election and the January 20th inauguration. The Transitions Integrity Project concluded that there is a high degree of likelihood that November's elections will be marked by a chaotic legal and political landscape. No kidding, Captain Obvious. Sorry. That's that's probably a bit harsh, but yeah, I, I think a blind man in a fur coat could have seen that one coming. 
Now, you can read the report. It's linked in the article, which, again, you can find in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. They go on to say Trump has at his fingertips secret emergency powers called Presidential Emergency Action Documents, or PEDS. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, these are executive orders, proclamations, and messages to, co- messages to Congress that are prepared in anticipation of a range of emergency scenarios. And here's the chilling part. They only require Trump's signature. Now, he's not the one who created them. So just to give you some perspective, they were created during the Eisenhower era in case of a Soviet nuclear attack. But over time, these presidential emergency action documents, or PEDs, have been expanded. PEDs are, as a government document describes them, intended to implement extraordinary presidential authority in response to extraordinary situations. What powers do these PEDs provide? Well, things like detention of dangerous persons, suspension of habeas corpus, Lincoln, looking your direction, martial law, search and seizure of persons and property, declaration of war, censorship. Okay, I have a real problem with that declaration of war one simply because that's Congress's purview, per the Constitution. But hey, why should we quibble over the written law of the land? And there's a link here that sends you to the Brennan Center where you can learn more about them. Now, the authors say there's plenty of reason to think Trump might declare a national emergency and invoke these powers. There's the ongoing COVID pandemic. and Most likely, however, a post-election political crisis would be the excuse. Civil unrest after a hotly contested election could be the trigger he seeks. He did not hesitate to deploy federal agents to suppress protests in Portland and threaten to do the same elsewhere. Things could get ugly. Maybe, maybe they mean uglier. While there are legal scholars who believe peds are unconstitutional, that remains to be seen. Therefore, it's important that we, the people, as the Constitution states, speak out about these potential dangers. And unless we do, we could easily slide into the abyss that befell Germany in the 1930s. And here's where it gets interesting, because the similarities are hauntingly similar. So as a reminder, Hitler came to power when President Hindenburg, Hindenburg rather, appointed him chancellor of a coalition government on January 30th, 1933. The Weimar Republic, created after, the, after World War I, had provided for a parliamentary democracy, but its constitution had a fatal flaw. Article 48 stated that under certain circumstances, the president could take emergency measures without the approval of the Reichstag. That's the German parliament. The convenient crisis that took place February 28, 1933, was when the Reichstag burned down. Now, no one knows who set the fire, but Hitler claimed it was the first step in a communist revolution. Hitler convinced Hindenburg to invoke emergency powers, and Germany fell from democracy into totalitarian dictatorship in days. Care to guess what emergency powers were included or invoked, rather, under Article 48? Arrest of enemies of the state? Suspension of habeas corpus? censorship, and no right of assembly, search, seizure, and confiscation of property. I know, right? The, uh, the, the similarities are, are, are chilling, to put it mildly. The authors say the, the rest, as we say, is history. Could something like that happen here? Now, we like to think our democratic traditions would prevent us from collapsing like Germany. While history doesn't always repeat itself, it does offer insights into the dangers that societies face. An unstable president with unlimited power are ingredients that have poisoned democracies before. 
As the philosopher George Santayana warned, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, again, this is an article from Stephen Brahe and Jim Nelson. And you can tell there's a there's a pretty strong anti-Trump flavor to it. Now, I don't necessarily share their their deep suspicion, but at the same time, I'm looking at what the, what past presidents have done. And, and I'm not going to try to suggest that, you know, Donald Trump is above all of that. If he holds the office of president, if there are presidential powers that have either been fabricated or have been exercised or otherwise legitimized because of previous presidents using them, it's a danger he might use them as well. It's a danger anybody in that office would use them. I don't know why this is so hard to understand. And I guess it, this, this speaks to the, that uh, tribal attitude that just kicks in every time a general election rolls around, but especially over the last couple of general elections. You know, if you're not for our, our candidate, then you're against him. It's that, that Sith absolutism, right? Sorry, my, my kids have all been watching every movie in the Star Trek uh, or Star Wars franchise, rather. And, and so uh, that, that line really jumped out at me. But political thinking makes us deal in absolutes. You're either with my candidate or you're against my candidate. And then there are those of us who really don't have a dog in the fight and don't find any candidate palatable because we don't believe, or at least I don't believe, I'll speak only for myself, I don't believe that anybody who is going to be elected or could potentially be elected to office this coming November is going to be the solution to what ails us. The names and faces may change depending on who sits in what chair or who resides at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But the system itself is largely going to stay intact. Why is that? Because the system itself is comprised primarily of people who are not elected. Come on, 535 people in Congress? Plus the Supreme Court? Plus the president? Okay, there, there's some electoral or election accountability, but not that much when you consider the size of that federal leviathan, not to mention all the state governments, which are likewise quite bloated. Now, they're not, you know, as, as big as the federal government, but they still have, uh, have a lot going for them. My point is simply this. No matter who gets elected, no matter who gets turned out at the election and is, is removed from office, most of the bureaucracy is going to stay in place. And with that in mind, nothing is going to change. So the change is going to have to come from somewhere other than the system itself. Now, I know the system is very good at insinuating itself into every aspect of our lives. I think the challenge before you and I is we have to figure out how to minimize our governmental footprint. There's actually a word for this. It's called agorism. And while not as scary to people as anarchy, it just simply means, look, you rule yourself. You stop begging permission from government to do whatever it is you're going to do. If you, if you need a haircut, you do not need to go to a licensed barber or a licensed, uh, you know, beautician. Go support your neighbor who cuts hair on the side. Pay them in cash. In fact, when you hand them the cash, tell them this is a gift, not a wage. Therefore, the IRS doesn't require you to uh, report gifts, and, you know, this is, this is just considered a gift. Don't worry about it on your taxes. Yes, I know it's subversive, but it's little acts like this that will help strangle the monster that is overbearing government. And we got to start somewhere. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again for being part of my growing audience and uh, helping spread the message for and like. It's not the message of The Brian Hyde Show. It's the message of freedom, personal conscience, private property rights, free markets, the things that make life beautiful, happy, and prosperous. And man, do we have our work cut out for us. Saw a great article uh, recently from Annie Holmquist from Intellectual Takeout, where she is the editor. And uh, because my wife is a public school teacher, this one caught my eye. I, I love good teachers. And in fact, it was with, with a little bit of, uh, it was with a little bit of wonderment I realized a few years ago that I'm a teacher. No, I'm not a public school teacher. But, uh, but in the sense that uh, I help share ideas that hopefully, you know, improve people's life or their understanding of the world and empower people to make a difference wherever they happen to be standing, I would accept that title. In fact, I would take it as a compliment. Somebody else called me a teacher, and I was like, really? Looked around, you, you can't be talking about me. But I think every one of us has that opportunity. It doesn't always have to be in a classroom setting. That's, that's where we mostly celebrate teaching, but think of some of the other areas where it can take place. Sometimes it's, uh, it's you know, sitting on a riverbank, fishing, having a discussion about things that matter. You get the point. Teaching opportunities are far beyond just simply formal education. And Annie Holmquist starts with, uh, this article is called How to Recognize a Bad Teacher. But she starts by talking about uh, her music teacher. And she says, the sign of a good music teacher, I was told as a, as a teenager, is a willingness to allow parents to sit in on lessons. A teacher willing to have parents observe their lessons demonstrates that she has nothing to hide is open to critique or comments, and is one who partners with parents in helping students succeed. In fact, she says, having witnessed this policy firsthand with my own piano instructor, a woman whose students won competitions and entered world-famous music schools, Annie says, I followed suit when I began teaching myself, and it paid off. She says, not only did this policy allow parents to see that I was open and honest with them in my dealings with their children, but she says it also helped me as the teacher particularly on one memorable occasion when a parent saw the temper tantrum her daughter unwisely decided to exhibit during her lesson. She said, I thought of this policy after hearing some of the repercussions of virtual school classes. Many school districts are jumping into a second round of distance learning as fall semester begins, but one that feels more official and buttoned down. Yet in the midst of this more orderly attempt at virtual schooling, an interesting picture is emerging, a picture which shows that some teachers don't want parents involved. Fox News recently reported the following, quote, A Tennessee school district is under fire for asking parents to sign a form agreeing not to eavesdrop on kids' virtual classes over concerns they could overhear confidential information. After significant pushback, Rutherford County Schools is allowing parents to tune in with permission from the teacher, but they can't record the classes, end quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says that sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Before the classroom came into the living room, it was difficult for parents to get a good grasp on what was in their children's curriculum. Now, if they became nosy investigators, they were often given the runaround through layers of school administration. 
a difficult process that would make any busy parent throw up their hands in disgust. Yet now when parents have a front row seat to what their child is learning and are still given the cold shoulder of secrecy, she says it's no surprise that some parents are saying, wait a minute, why can't we know what someone else is teaching our child? Is there something they don't want us to hear? And Annie Holmquist says perhaps so. At least that seems to be the message of one teacher's musings posted on Twitter several weeks ago. And she has these pictures, so you can see the actual tweets for yourself. The teacher's name is Matthew R.K. And he says, so this fall, virtual class discussions will have many potential spectators, parents, siblings, etc., in the same room. We'll never quite be sure who is overhearing the discourse. What does this do for our equity inclusion work? How much have students depended on the somewhat secure barriers of our physical classrooms to encourage vulnerability? How many of us have installed some version of what happens here stays here to help this? While conversations about race are in my wheelhouse and remain a concern in this no-walls environment, I am most intrigued by the damage that helicopter-slash-snowplow parents can do in honest conversations about gender and sexuality. And he says, and while conservative parents are my chief concern, I know that the damage can come from the left, too. If we are engaged in the messy work of destabilizing a kid's racism or homophobia or transphobia, how much do we want their classmates' parents piling on? That's a teacher, yes, expressing concern that, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, if I'm indoctrinating your kids on these woke attitudes, I don't know if I want you to be aware of this. I don't want you weighing in. Well, I can see why. Annie Holmquist says, many of us find such admissions alarming. How is it that we've sent our children to public schools for years, believing they would become educated, upstanding American citizens, only now to discover that they were simply being indoctrinated with ideas that these teachers seem to know many parents wouldn't approve of? Unfortunately, such a response could have been avoided had Americans heeded H.L. Mencken's warning about the nation's public schools nearly 100 years ago. There is an erroneous assumption when it comes to America's education system, says Mencken. Quote, that erroneous assumption is to the effect that the aim of public education is to fill the young of the species with knowledge and awaken their intelligence, and so make them fit to discharge the duties of citizenship in an enlightened and independent manner. Nothing could be further from the truth. So what then is the goal of public education? Well, Mencken explains the aim of public education is not to spread enlightenment at all. It is simply to reduce as many individuals as possible to the same safe level, to breed and train a standardized citizenry, to put down dissent and originality. That is its aim in the United States, whatever the pretensions of politicians, pedagogues, and other such mountebacks. And that is its aim everywhere else. End quote. I know it seems harsh, but I don't see anything in there that I would disagree with. Annie Holmquist says Mencken goes on to say that the purpose of public schools is visible in countries which had them long before America, one of which was Prussia. Prussian schools, upon which the modern American school is modeled, had the quite different aim of putting down political and economic heresy. Their purpose, Mencken continues, is to make docile and patriotic citizens to pile up majorities, to make John Doe and Richard Doe as nearly alike in their everyday reactions and ways of thinking as possible. End quote. Now let me just pause here for a moment and ask you, 
to make them as nearly alike in their everyday reactions and ways of thinking as possible. I'm just going to say, translate that into the mask debate going on in our society today. It does seem that that's, uh, that's what's going on. I, I can see a thread of truth in there. In fact, more than a thread. It's more like a, a gigantic uh, anchor rope. As Annie Holmquist says, and there we are, the picture of American schools that has crystallized since the pandemic brought public education home, even when some teachers don't want us to see that true picture. And it was predicted nearly a century before. She says, the funny thing is, Menken wrote these words while reviewing a book by Upton Sinclair on America's schools. Although a prominent democratic socialist, Sinclair appears to have been aghast at the organized stupidity in public schools. She says, like Sinclair, we too can be aghast at such a situation, but if we want our children to grow up as free thinkers who don't fit the cookie-cutter mold, then we must do more than express shock and outrage at such a situation. Are we prepared to place our children under the care and instruction of those who truly want them to learn and grow, rather than simply parrot politically correct mantras, even if it means we must make sacrifices and teach them ourselves? Again, this is from Annie Holmquist, editor of intellectualtakeout.org. I'll have the link to this in the show notes. Check it out for yourself. Now, I'm going to shift gears here for just a moment, and and I'm going to pose a question. I know there are many within the sound of my voice who are very adamantly opposed to the mask mandates in the public schools. And And I'm not telling you that it's, you know, if you sent your kid without a mask... I know kids are being removed from buses. They're stopping football games. The 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 official pressure, the the um, put the squeeze, make everybody feel the pain. The collective punishment is is really really strong. But I have to ask, parents, rather than encourage your encouraging your child to go fight that, um, for lack of a better phrase, on enemy territory, on the enemy's ground. Isn't it time to consider just taking your children out of that situation, out from under state control in the first place? I know what I'm saying here incurs incredible sacrifice in both time and money and effort. But I think it may be the better way. I think by withdrawing your consent, by withdrawing your child from that state control, you're sending as strong, if not a stronger message than if you send your kid to school without a mask. Now, that's only my opinion, but you're certainly welcome to it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.